0: Hi, this is Matt Slepin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Fred Tawami, the CEO of Invitation Homes. For those of you who do not know, Invitation Homes is the largest publicly traded company in the single-family rental business. It's the combination of companies started by Blackstone, Starwood, and Colony Capital during the global financial crisis... And businesses that, when started, looked to be distressed real estate plays, but actually were creating a new long-term real estate asset class, the Institutional Ownership and Management of Single Family Rentals, a business that had previously been 100% mom and pop. For me, this interview was a treat and really an excuse for a conversation I've long wanted to have with Fred. I first got to know Fred about 25 years ago when he was at Equity Residential and helping that team create an institutional platform of scale for the apartment industry, which was then also more mom and pop than institutional. Fred worked at EQR for Sam Zell, who we interviewed for the podcast last year. Fred, along with others like Keith Oden at Camden, who we also interviewed a few weeks ago, were really the creators of the institutional scale apartment management and ownership model. We will explore this in the conversation. But here's the treat. Fred retired from EQR about 10 years ago. Shortly after retiring, he got a call from Colony Capital to consider helping them bring his experience in the apartment business to their plans for creating the same in the single-family rental business. I've been waiting for a few years to have this conversation with Fred. I've wanted to hear his story about the single-family rental business and the parallels as well as the differences between this emerging business and what's now fairly mature on the apartment side. I apologize, but I think we geeked out a bit in the conversation. Hopefully you'll find it as interesting as I did. I bet you will. Let us know. Thanks. Enjoy the conversation. Fred Tuami, it's Matt Slepin, and thrilled to be talking with you. It's been a long time. We've known each other for I hate to say 20-plus years, but it's true, and here we are in a podcast conversation, which I'm thrilled to be having.
1: Wow, yeah, thank you so much. It's uh, it's exciting to be here, and I, I can't believe it's 20-plus years, but it seems like it happens to me a lot these days when <laughs> I, I, I see associates, I say, do you realize how long we've known each other? I know. It's, kind it's of scary, but it's also a lot of fun.
0: I agree. It's one of the beautiful things about the business and uh, my favorite elements of having been in it for a long time and then doing what I do, because I... I have to retouch base with people all the time in my work. Mm -hmm. But when we first met, it was in your office at Equity Residential, and you were just starting there, maybe within six months of having joined from Post Properties. And what we talked about then was the act of rolling up multifamily into an institutional business. And maybe we didn't even know what that meant back then, but I think you did that for 15 years and really accomplished that. And, and then we paused for a little bit and you Sammy, retired and then came back out, I think, with the goal of doing almost that same concept of rolling up technology-wise and operational-wise the institutional ownership of single-family homes. Those are the bookends of the conversation that I'm really excited to dive into. Yeah, I think you, you, you kind of summarized uh, my
1: last uh, 30 years uh, in a nutshell. Uh, you're right. Uh, those early days at Equity Residential, that was, what was so exciting was creating a new, not a new business per se, but a new approach to the business, a, a new source of capital, a new source of people, a uh, new source of operating methodologies. And then, of course, as we evolved in, the, as in a parallel time track when the Internet for business really developed, you know, it, it was a technology uh, venture as well. So that, that was a lot of fun. Very interesting a lot of creativity uh, was applied to the business that historically hadn't changed for many, many decades, and uh, we uh, really transformed an industry. You know, and Equity Residential was at the forefront of it. I felt very fortunate to be there with a lot of talented, experienced, um, creative people, and we ha- had a blast. And um, it wasn't just our company; we we're one of the leaders in it, but the whole industry was was transformed that way. And fast forward, you know, 20 years. Uh, you're right. I, I did retire. I thought it was time to let the next generation take over. And uh, a short period of time thereafter, I, it was like deja vu all over again. I, I um, was introduced to a group of people who had put a lot of risk capital together and were doing some big and bold things. And I realized there are many, many parallels, you know, to those those early days of the apartment, you know, um, transformation, you know, and that being that of single family rental. So it was pretty great great opportunity to basically do it all over again but as things go these days it's uh, everything is uh, better faster cheaper so uh, we're able to accomplish a lot in a very short period of time much more efficiently
0: and technology's a driver because when you started in this the, the technologies that today didn't exist then but the technologies that existed then 20 years ago were brand new as well yes yeah and now i think
1: back because uh, that's really how I got into the real estate business at the very beginning was through technology. I was a, I was a computer, you know, geek, and uh, that was my undergraduate degree was in computer science uh, and statistical quantitative methods, which was number crunching. And uh, I was able to re- early in my career associate myself with a very forward-thinking, creative, visionary, a man named John Lee Nielsen, who had created a huge real estate empire all based on apartments uh, called Consolidated Capital and Johnstown Properties back then. They're out of Emeryville, California. And at one point, we had almost 300,000 apartments. And he, uh, he wanted to use these new things called computers, and he wanted to take them out of the back office and put them into the front lines of the business. And that was the transforming vision. And uh, I was a young whippersnapper you know, with a computer science degree doing some consulting work. And this is way before the Internet and way before, you know, desktop computers to frame the time frame. But he he said, I I want to build this and I can transform this business. That's a whole other story, but we did it. And then that was kind of the beginning of the new transformation.
0: Yeah. So let's hear your story on how you got there. So school was where? Growing up was where? And how did you connect to this guy?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, um, Grew up, well, I was born in Minnesota, worked my way south, lived in Pittsburgh. Uh, my father worked for U.S. Steel Corporation, and then uh, eventually uh, he ended up in the southeast, uh, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. So I, I finished high school in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, then ended up going to uh, uh, University of Georgia, and then finishing up at Georgia State University. And that's uh, because they had a, a business computer science program, which is one of the first in the country. Uh, especially in the southeast, so uh, I fell in love with computers, you know, through school, and uh, worked at the Federal Reserve Bank, worked at a, um, a company that developed the uh, very first uh, hospital, you know, healthcare uh, c- computerized system, and then the heyday of time sharing. I worked for a, another California-based company called Computer Sciences Corporation, CSC, was still in existence, doing consulting work for different types of businesses. And, the, and then that's how I um, that's how I got to know the people at uh, at Consolidated Capital, who were um, uh, primarily, you know, John Lee Nielsen, who had this this vision, this idea. And uh, I was given the assignment as a you know kind of a young kid with a fresh technology degree, and uh, studied the business, I studied it all on paper. Spent about a year interviewing every. Person I could speak to about you know the, how this business works and really learned it from the inside out and how all the data flowed manually and then came up with a vision of how to automate it and then I actually uh, hired some programmers and did a lot of the software development myself and created the very first you know uh, apartment management system and, uh, and then you know over a period of several years implemented it on on a couple hundred thousand apartment units. And then we actually converted it into a commercially uh, viable system and sold the software to others and eventually sold it to Prentice Hall. And that was eventually the real page. Uh, And that's very popular through today, although the kernel of of the software that I developed uh, actually was the rest with the Y2K. I don't know if you remember that uh, phenomenon.
0: Yeah, of course. (laughs) So it had a great run
1: and really transformed uh, the whole business. And that's how I got into it was through the technology piece and along the way... Back and got a master's uh, business administration, which taught me all the things that I, I I knew I didn't know. You know, just how to run a business and how to how to manage people and how to uh, uh, judge turns on investment and that versus just the technology piece.
0: And Fred, when you did that early technology piece, was that purely from an operation standpoint? Did it have anything to do with the ownership side of asset management, investment management?
1: It was, it was primarily the operations piece of it because the, the thing that was different, um, and had this creative visionary, you know, who, who said, this is my vision for the future, which I bought into. And then it was my responsibility to build it was to put the computer in the hands of the people, you know, and the front line of the business. And when you think about it, this was 30 years ago. Right. That was very, very, you know, cutting edge stuff. Uh, computers were just barely used, but they're all in the back office. That was where you did the accounting and the green bar paper that would produce profit and loss statements and balance sheets and general ledgers. And then also all the investor accounting, the K-1s and all the investor and the asset management, fixed assets, et cetera, were pretty much just batch processing back office kind of systems, Uh, but nothing was being done to uh, empower and enable Frontline employees that were serving the customers, you know, in the field, uh, you know, that was all total manual paper ledgers. Right. And uh, so the idea was, uh, let's use these things called computers, make everything more efficient and, and increase productivity. Let's put it where we have most of our people to really get the benefits of productivity enhancement. You have to make all of your as many employees as possible more productive, not just a few back at the home office.
0: Right. So that's incredibly visionary, incredibly early. They had what was their technology at the site? And I'm remembering this because I was watching some of this from the other side. And A, it was like dial up service. And B, they were scared to have site level employees have computers at their desk figuring they would spending their days not on work, but on on untoward things on the Internet. But the Internet didn't exist. Didn't
1: exist. You're right. Uh, in fact, personal computers didn't exist. We, we, used, we used these machines that were made by IBM that were really made for data entry. They were like glorified key punch machines, if you can even remember that term. Yeah. We made them do things that they were never designed to do. And that, that was another part of the you know, necessity as the mother of all invention. So uh, there's so many aspects to that That's part of the story of just the early days of technology advancement. And you're right. Uh, the biggest hurdle we had was training employees and the associates in the field uh, how to operate, you know, a, the basic fundamentals of a keyboard. I mean, uh, there was no such thing as just basic computer literacy. We were starting from scratch, mm-hmm. and there were no there were no mice, no visual interface. It, everything was just uh, right there on on a screen and on a printer. And, and you're right. You mentioned dial up. There was no broadband, so we we actually had over the telephone lines, you know, dial up modems that would call every computer, call hundreds of these computers every night. It was it was archaic, it was dinosaur land. But back then the cost was this astronomical. I think we we're, we were spending twenty to thirty thousand dollars per site just for the hardware.
0: Unbelievable. And then eventually ConCap they went out of business, I think, and then you wound up at post. And maybe we'll take this in like five-year increments to, to think through the changes, because just to, to keep the flow of the conversation going. So what, what came next?
1: Yeah, the uh, so that business was really on top of the world. We had uh, literally 300,000 multifamily units at one point. And then the Tax Reform Act of 1986 was passed, which really killed you know, the real estate limited partnership tax-incented um, limited partnership business that was printing money every day. And that literally a stroke of a pen, that was the, you know, the end of that business, which created a lot of stress and that in the system. And then that eventually flowed over to the savings and loan crisis. And then the government had to step in and take over thousands and thousands and thousands of properties in foreclosure. Uh, so that in itself created... Um, you know, the implosion of that business, but then it creates new opportunities like it always does. So the next uh, phase of my uh, career was uh, I wrote that to the very end. I was one of the last employees, good, good education for a young man back then, but it was stressful you know, having to shut down businesses, close offices after having years and years of growth and expansion. And then to actually have to turn the lights off at the end of the day, i had become very close to the chairman of the company. And he had, um, uh, by that time had given me portfolios of real estate to operate. So I was no longer just a tech guy. You know, I was actually, you know, running a lot of distressed real estate. So eventually we had to turn the lights off and then we redefined ourselves. This is a very small group of handful of people. We started doing uh, property management on a fee basis for all of these distressed assets, you know, that the government was foreclosing on through the s l crisis and others. So we were doing work for, you know, Fannie, Freddie, HUD, all, all sorts of banks, savings and loans, etc. So I, I created a, um, a uh, from scratch a fee management business, um, headquartered in Atlanta, and it was operating pretty much the southeast, southwestern United States, and really had a great run at that. So I built a very large fee management business, was very profitable. That, that, as that opportunity began to plateau, I was uh, living in Atlanta, Georgia, and I don't know if anybody knows Atlanta, you know of the Post Properties, you know, organization, which was the, you know, the quintessential, you know, apartment uh, uh, developer and manager. So uh, I was able to uh, uh, hook up with them, with John Williams and John Glover back in the heyday and uh, kept that fee management business going. And then uh, they eventually went uh, public as one of the early uh, real estate investment trusts. EQR had just gone public ahead of them. And then, uh, this is by coincidence, how things work in, in a career sometimes. Uh, I had never been to Chicago, and some of our neighbors in Atlanta, many, many of our neighbors actually were moving to Atlanta from Chicago. They invited us to go back for a Thanksgiving visit. And my wife and I had um, you know, a few children, and we thought we had to be kind of an adventure. So we went to Chicago for Thanksgiving and got caught in a snowstorm. You know, so uh, we we couldn't get out of O'Hare. So I thought, well, shit, what well, on there? What am I going to do? So I looked up some of my old uh, clients that were in the you know the uh, lending business. Who had ended up at Equity Residential. Yeah, unbelievable. So, uh, had lunch with Doug Crocker, and then the next week he called me up and said, "You're going to come work for us."
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I said, Are you crazy? That's you. You talking about Chicago, Illinois. You know, my wife was born and raised in Georgia. You know, we're Southerners. We like it down here. And uh, he said, uh, forget that. You're going to come work for us. And uh, sure enough, um, we talked about it. And, and my wife is a free spirit. She said, you know, hell, let's, let's go for it. You know, let's do, do something new and exciting. And so we did. We moved our family from Atlanta, Georgia to Chicago, uh, just as EQR had been formed, and it was in the growth phase.
0: Wow. And, and this is all because the snowstorm in Chicago, and you wanted to go back to another snowstorm, so you knew what you're getting yourself into.
1: Yeah, right. In fact, we were looking for a home there. It was uh, February, and uh, my poor wife didn't own a, a serious coat, did not own boots, so we had to buy all of that gear. We realized that people in the north, they don't wear clothing, they wear gear.
0: <laughs> exactly. But it
1: turned out to be a fantastic move for my, uh, my family, my daughter's uh, view of the world completely changed and it was expanded. The education system up there in North Shore of Chicago, we lived in a place called Lake Forest, really world class. And uh, well, they were exposed to so many wonderful aspects of, of a more worldly life versus you know Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, so it was a great, great experience for us.
0: Doug made you an offer you couldn't refuse. One of our podcasts last season was with Sam Zell, and so we, mm-hmm. we got to hear this story of his starting all these companies. But talk about what you did at EQR for, what was it, 15 years, give or take? I was actually at
1: EQR. I'm sorry, I was at EQR for 20 years.
0: Wow. 20 years. What was the task at hand when you started, and then how did you attack it, and how well was it articulated as to what that goal was?
1: Yeah, yeah by, by then I was – I was kind of past, you know, the technology piece, although you never really, you don't leave. lose that.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. To, I have a passion. I, I don't understand how they do some of the things they do. Cause I try to think about when I was a, you know, a, a code developer using hammer and chisel compared to what they use today, but, uh, still fascinates me. But yeah, the, uh, by then I was a you know, it's a seasoned experienced property manager, operations guy, you know, uh, and that's how I, I had, uh, made my living for the past several years and, you know, and had got a lot of really good experience when you're solving problems on distressed assets. So um, I was anxious to, to apply that to a ownership you know, uh, mentality versus a fee uh, mentality. So the, so the, uh, the goal at uh, Equity Residential was growth. It went public with, I think, a total market cap at that time of like $500 million, which sounded like a lot of money back then, but it was minuscule. I think we had about maybe 12 or 13,000 apartments. So um, all of a sudden we were drinking from a fire hose and Doug Crocker was uh, the rainmaker and he was able to, you know, raise money and, and buy assets and raise money and buy portfolios and raise money and buy companies and merge and expand across the country. And my job was, uh, I was president of the, of the management company presidential. I opened offices, I hired people and um, repeat, repeat, repeat as we marched across the country. So exciting because literally every week it was like, he would say, get ready because I'm gonna load up your truck. And it was like, okay, what next? He said, well, we're just, we're just buying these you know, 5,000 unit portfolio and then we're buying this 15,000 unit company and then we're buying, you know, these. It was just one thing after another as we literally spanned the country in um, building that company. You know, opening offices, hiring people, uh, simulating portfolios and trying to build you know two things. One was a uniform platform that was highly efficient and struck the proper balance between centralized command and control for consistency, but yet entrepreneurial application of that platform uh, to do the best thing for the asset and for the, for the uh, residents, you know, in the field. Mm-hmm. Second thing was to build a company culture. A lot of people don't realize, but Sam Zell, you know, is, you know, he's a rough, tough, you know, businessman who's who's self-made, you know, a billionaire, very successful. and, And people fear him, you know, in terms of being on the other side of the negotiating table. But inside, you know, he is very passionate about people, very passionate about culture and passionate about, about, you know, Doing the right thing and doing it the right way, and and build a compassionate but yet driven culture where people are going to come together for the greater good and stick with us, you know, through thick and thin. So we we built a culture um, very quickly that really uh, established Equity Residential as the employer of choice and one that uh, got the extra mile out of virtually every single. You know uh, associate, and we as a consequence, when I look back at my career in twenty years, I was still still doing business on a daily basis with the same people that um, I had met when I first joined the company and the same people that I hired and created opportunities for uh, together through that career and that was very rewarding I bet and uh, very something very special
0: hey, so tell me how you how you balance the drink from the fire hose, or maybe when the drink from the fire hose turns to a normalized level of water coming out of the pipe to then building a great organization, because you can't drink from the fire hose and build a great organization concurrently. Maybe you can, but it seems to me it might be more sequential. As one winds down, the other one starts to really gain traction.
1: Yeah, you would think so, but you really had to do both. And there was never really a you know, you think, well, we're going to ignore one because we got have the other, you know, if you really had to, I mean, of course, growth is going to trump everything because there was no stopping the growth. Right. It just, the, everything had come together at the right time, the capital markets, the real estate markets, you could still buy tremendous deals, you know, on a fraction of, their, you know, replacement cost. And it was just go, 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 go. Uh, but uh, we didn't really stop and think about. Well, gee, we'll get to the people side later. It just evolved, and and because we're we're creating so much opportunity, and there was so much creativity being applied, and so much uh, hard work. But yet, a lot of it was was fun. We had fun every day, and uh, that's where I learned to, you know, take problems and, and see the opportunity in them, and and actually enjoy solving problems versus getting all stressed out over problems. It was this kind of a uh, magical time where you just didn't really question it, you just did it. Right. And we were on a very large scale, growing very rapidly. And there was so much work going on and uh, time just flew by. Uh, and the other cool thing about my 20 years there, I never really got bored because every six or seven years, there was a transformation. And and part of it was just the natural transformation. You're not going to sustain that that huge quantum growth forever. Uh, so eventually, yes, you you aren't growing as much. You're just growing differently. And we morphed from accumulating assets to refining the management and making them perform, and then refining the portfolio growth through contraction. We on a, embarked on a several-year uh, strategy of culling the assets, getting out of markets that didn't make sense, selling assets that didn't make sense, repositioning into you know our view of the future of value creation. And and we actually in cut the size of the company dramatically, but actually grew the value of the company astronomically.
0: For, for the uninitiated, uh, d- describe that because I think you went from, I don't know, 150,000 units to 80,000 units or something, but then the units were more valuable because they were better markets. What was the... Just the metrics yeah, of those days. I can give, give you that in a nutshell. Imagine this.
1: Selling the entire city of Jacksonville. And, and by city, I mean we had probably three or 4,000 you know, units yep. in Jacksonville, Florida, to buy one asset in Manhattan.
0: Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> okay? Yep. Um, but the value
1: of that asset trade it made all the sense in the world to this day so it's it's it was commodity versus you know something special you know it, it was um you know tertiary markets versus gateway markets it was exurbs suburbs you know to infill urban you know it was you know rents of significantly less than a dollar a foot to rents of multiples of dollars a foot you know so uh, uh, it, it was just a, a portfolio outlook, and that was really driven by Sam Zell. You know, he had the, the long-term vision of irreplaceable assets, irreplaceable assets. And that's we think about. You boil real estate down, you know, the old adage that, well, hey, real estate's place you want to be because they're not making more of it. Um, but then there's location, 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 you know, uh, some real estate is, you know, Always going to be more valuable than other. Right. So uh, he position, positioned our strategy to be think about these 24/7 gateway cities to this economy, um, the nation's economy, and think irreplaceable assets. Doesn't matter how old they are, you know, it's irreplaceable asset that has high value today, but it will only grow go up over the long term versus a commodity asset. Built on a commodity piece of uh, land, commodity economy that can be functionally obsolete every time somebody builds the next slightly newer commodity asset right next door. So we, we transformed the company. You know, it took us several years, but um, you know that's the, the current state of equity residential. You know, I had been gone there for five years, so I can't really speak for them. But uh, it's 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 a portfolio. It's, it's highly coveted.
0: Absolutely. So if you think about a business where you have a group of irreplaceable assets that you're holding for the very long term, all in a unified balance sheet, then you get to give someone like Fred Tuami a mandate to create an organization that lasts for assets that last. That, that had never been done in that business before. So just talk a little bit about what you were able to accomplish or your perspective on both building that culture and then building the operational scheme to make that work. Yeah. We
1: were truly blessed with, you know, first, this the big opportunity. Uh, but we weren't, you know, we weren't the only ones, uh, but there were only a couple of us, right? You know, there was a residential, you know, there's Avalon Bay, there was Archstone, you know, and then, and then, uh, you know, later the rest of the companies that are, are the survivors today, you know, the, top-notch companies, you know, UDR, Camden, Essex, you know, MAA. Right. You know, uh, all of those companies, you know, were formed generally in the same period of time, you know, over several year period, but EQR was one of the first and one of the first to go big. And I think what, what we were able to do was we had this drive to do it right, you know, and and invest in technology, invest in platforms, invest in consistency you know and uniform uh, application of methodologies uh, sophisticated management uh, methodologies not just the old the old-school apartment management and those were marketing systems and uh, and uh, maintenance systems and customer service systems you know, all of these and then the, the big catalyst was the internet and it's probably just sounds bizarre to young people now of of imagining a world without the internet you know, but there was a world free internet <laughs> and you had to do things differently. And uh, boy, once we got that tool in our hands, that really transformed and accelerated everything. Uh, you know, and, and one of the main things was, uh, you know, the revenue management piece of it that really upped our game in terms of sophistication of use of big data and, uh, studying, in a more detailed basis, the relationships of supply and demand and all of the drivers of supply, the drivers of demand, and finding that equilibrium, you know, optimal point of not just price, but revenue. And uh, that, that opened our eyes. And that, that's why then all of a sudden you have a whole new learning, which stimulated creativity and people never got stale in that environment. So there's always something new to learn and discover and apply. And then the, the the final frontier was when the when the general public embraced technology, not only embraced it, but demands it, and and delivering that that marriage of you know the consumer relationship at the point of transaction and the point of service with technology, where your customers interact with your technology just as much, and in fact today more than your actual employees,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, the driving force. And, and we had this commitment to to do that and to invent it and build it. Uh, and it wasn't uh, we were shy about making big bold moves in, in technology. And that's what's being applied to single family today, you know, and all over again, but on, even on a grander scale.
0: Uh, I think I, I think that may be our segue, although I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was last an apartment renter, this was in D.C., and I won't say how long ago it was, there was this woman named Mrs. Levine, and I had to go into her office, which was behind, she was behind a desk, and there was a wall of smoke between me and her because she was a chain smoker. And I had to sign my lease and sign my renewals and ask to switch apartments to this woman who scared the heck out of me. <laughs> <laughs> and there were Mrs. Levines yeah. all over the world and all over the country in apartment buildings. Yep,
1: yeah, that was uh, that was the old school uh, uh, property manager. That was Mrs. Levine.
0: You know, God forbid. Oh my <laughs> God! So that's changed a little bit.
1: Uh, yes, in, in the apartment business, uh, that's totally changed. In the single family rental business, you know, that's that was the environment just a couple of years ago. And and. and large degree still as that environment. So
0: let's attack this in two ways or three ways. One is you retired, but then you didn't retire. So kind of think about the bringing you back into the business. And then just talk about the headlines, because I know your company has gone through so much. The ownership structure has changed so many times, and there's been so much M&A about it. So we could track the headlines. And then I want to know how it works. But maybe first, the Fred and what brought Fred there from... EQR. Okay,
1: after you know twenty years, uh, so with uh, with equity residential, I had grandchildren. They were in San Diego. It was more of a draw to spend more time there. Uh, I had um, fulfilled you know most of you know, well beyond my initial imagination of what I could fulfill in my career there, and there was, we had such a a talented and deep young bench, you know of of people that were just ready. That I, I said, you know what? Uh, I just need to step aside, and uh, it had been very, very good to me, you know, uh, career-wise and financially. And I was able to do that, and, uh, and I never looked back. It was it was absolutely the right thing to do. Do I miss it? Yes, but uh, it was you know for me personally and for you know the, the other parts of the management team, it was the right thing to do. So I spent time with my grandkids and my wife, and um, I was. You, live, you know, living in our home there in Rancho Santa Fe, life was good in San Diego. And uh, I was going to the grocery store twice a day and doing laundry, you know, once a day and cooking a lot and, you know, just really enjoying things. And then I thought, well, shit, you know, what am I going to do? Uh, so I actually started poking around looking at, you know, how to buy some single family homes. And uh, by the time I could even, you know, run some numbers, they were gone already. And I thought, wow, somebody's really, really moving aggressively in this business. What's going on? Uh, just again, just by coincidence, uh, I got a call and said, hey, these, these guys at Tawny Capital, you know Tom Barrick and his, uh, one of his partners, Justin Chang, they they want to talk to you about about this business and how you did things in the apartment business, you know, many years ago, because there may be some similarities. So I uh, had a meeting with them in Los Angeles. And oh my god, light bulbs started fly- flashing in front of me. And as the more we talked, I said, well, I know exactly what you need. You need someone like me you know, who's been there, done that, and that could uh, you know, allow you to avoid some of the mistakes and how to set up the management of, a, of this asset class that is very similar to apartments, but you know, but importantly, different in some key areas, Uh, but you're growing like crazy. And they're literally, again, drinking from a fire hose, buying thousands of homes a week with no clue of how to operate them. And and it was by, you know, these acquisitions were being handled by a lot of, you know, young, talented, but inexperienced people that were just, you know, uh, focused on acquisitions and no one really had a focus on what are we going to do with them after you own them.
0: Yeah, they didn't have a catcher's mitt. These balls are being fired. <laughs> Mixed metaphors, but uh, here they come, but n- nothing to do with them. Yeah, it
1: was, it was, it was wild and uh, very uh, chaotic in the very beginning. So I thought, well, heck, uh, I can see how this could be very similar to the early days of the apartment business, where you're taking a mom-and-pop business and institutionalizing it, and, and the, the main catalytic event was financial distress very similar, you know, uh, parallels to the to the institutionalization and professionalization of the modern apartment business you know, thirty years ago. So I said, okay, fine, I'll I'll do it, and um, uh, you know, we'll set up camp in Scottsdale. And they had already. I wasn't there day one, but pretty close to day one. They were you're just you know uh, focusing on acquisitions, acquisitions, and renovations. So. Uh, I did it, and I found out very quickly that I was kind of the, the only um, guy with gray hair, you know, in the whole whole <laughs> venture. Uh-huh. And uh, but that was to my advantage because I, I I was um, amazed by some of it, but I wasn't surprised by any of it. So we uh, hunkered down and started controlling it, and it, it was it took a while. It took a couple years, but uh, and a lot of my friends were saying, "Well, you know, what the bleep are you doing? This will never work." You know, this is only a big trade. You can't operate this as a business. These homes are all separated by time and space, and this is going to be impossible. Uh, but then things started to come together. And then again, I was blessed with a visionary. You know, Tom Barrick had raised a couple billion dollars of, of equity. We're investing it rapidly in homes. I mean, we were literally going to courthouse steps with hand trucks of cashier's checks. Right. You know, of every, of every denomination you could think of because you had to pay cash on the barrelhead right then and there. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, John Q. Public could not have been buying these foreclosure homes. You had to buy them sight scene. Well, you could probably, you could drive on the outside, but you could not get inside the home. Uh, and you had to pay cash immediately right then and there. Holy cow. With no strings attached. You couldn't give them back. So it wasn't for the uh, faint of heart. A lot of risk. But uh, in addition to allocating capital to the acquisition of homes, building the assets, uh, he said, "Listen, build a platform. Build a technology uh, that's going to run this business for the long term and highly scalable. You know, basically, build a, a bulletproof, fully functioning, technology-based platform for the future. versus prototyping. You know, a lot of people got in this business and they prototyped. You know, they wouldn't make that commitment. He said, do whatever it takes. So that was music to my ears, and that's what we did.
0: So question, I've always wondered this about that business. How much of the intentionality was around we're in and then we're going to get out versus this is a long-term business that is going to last and there'll be a REIT there in 20 years?
1: Yeah, I think the people who are in big uh, definitely believed it was for the long term. That was... That was uh, Tom Barrick. Mm-hmm. That was Barry Sternley, and that was clearly John Gray with Blackstone, and then and then later uh, Progress Residential, right, and then and others. Uh, oh, and American, Oh, and, and Wayne Hughes. I'm sorry, Wayne Hughes with American Homes for Rent. So the the the, uh, the largest um, capital bases with the visionary sponsors knew it. Uh, but they knew it was going to be painful and it would take a while, but they knew it was achievable and they were going to build another asset class within the public real estate arena. There's no reason why this asset class should not be you know, in the hands of institutional capital with professional management, more efficient you know, utilization of these assets in the economy versus you know, continuing the mom and pop inefficient method. Others from the outside criticized us continually, saying that we were, you know, insane to think we could rent, build a asset class and that it was going to fail, and you would have to eventually capitulate and sell these assets, still making money. Um, but uh, that became kind of a personal challenge just to prove them wrong. You know, one day, about a year and a half into it, everything started to crystallize, and I knew it was going to work.
0: Was there a moment that caused that? You know, it doesn't seem that remarkable now, but when I was able to
1: actually see on a, on a dashboard, computer screen on my desk, see current occupancy, current availability, uh, current leasing velocity, traffic on the website, see the, the daily indicators of this retail business from my desktop. Then I knew that we could control this business.
0: And and the story of your company is an interesting one, and I, and I want to understand it from two perspectives because you've done three or four mergers. And so I'm interested in that, but I'm also interested in, as those three or four companies came together, what the differences in approach were, both from an asset selection standpoint, strategic standpoint, and then an operational standpoint, and had you all reached the same conclusions or were you all doing somewhat different things?
1: Okay, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's been um, uh, really two major uh, mergers, You know, some uh, acquisitions along the way, obviously. But uh, I would say the common thread through all of them is a, a couple of things. One was the acquisition strategy and the acquisition discipline was very similar across all of the predecessor companies. And by that, I mean each one was more patient than some others and and only bought homes in markets that were long-term growth markets of this nation's economy. Uh, They were the drivers of our nation's economy. They're those that, uh, over the long run, almost every year, are going to be higher than the national average in terms of the primary real estate residential real estate metric drivers which are uh, population growth, household formation, job growth, personal income growth and then quality of life uh, you know uh, attributes. So each one had a very similar uh, but important strategically important commitment to that Discipline. Interesting. Uh, did not buy just wherever you could buy juicy, compelling upfront yields, but bought with the eye on long-term growth, you know, of stabilized income streams. So that and that was very important distinction, and that's why that's why we were building these platforms for long-term durable performance versus just a trade, you know, a home price appreciation-based trade. If you're gonna do, do trade, then you'd probably buy you know, anywhere you wanted to uh, at pennies on a dollar, get a big upfront yield, hold it, and, and, and then sell. But uh, that wasn't the approach of any of these predecessor companies. So each merger, we didn't have to have you know, a bunch of cats and dogs in terms of markets. It wasn't round peg square hole. It was a nice hand and glove uh, portfolio overlap. For example, our most recent merger, we had, I think it's like 80, 82 or 83% you know, market overlap. So then with each merger, then the footprint did not get wider. The footprint just got deeper and more dense, which therefore adds to the efficiency. So uh, you know, when Colony American Homes had, you know, we fought and scratched and bought and you know, grew, but still only was able to get to about 20,000 homes. And that was big enough, but it's nowhere near optimal. So when we merged with Starwood, you know, brought on 10 or 12,000 more, but they're on the, almost the same footprint. Interesting. So then we immediately became more efficient in those every market. And then with Invitation Homes, oh my God, you know, it was the same footprint. The only markets we, we didn't overlap, each company wanted to be in. Uh, so uh, it was very synergistic. And again, the density, the density, the density, we just got further and further enhanced, which makes us more efficient uh, and makes our product offering more compelling and value added to our resident base. So with each merger, we just got stronger. And then in terms of operating methodologies, yeah, there were nuances, differences, um, but they were, again, compatible. Uh, for example, the most recent merger, uh, you know, uh, the Colony Starwood Uh, platform was highly um, uh, more centralized and much more technology enabled all the way through and including the customer interaction. Uh, Invitation Homes uh, was uh, less of that but was marching towards that. Uh, But Invitation Homes had developed a very unique um, uh, and very efficient service delivery and set of customer commitments and uh, customer service uh, methodologies that were very interesting, very compelling, that uh, Starward Waypoint had not yet, uh, you know, it was on the roadmap, had not yet started you know, the implementation of that. So it, it was just an acceleration of uh, a very similar you know, strategy.
0: And, and if you were to identify the biggest difference, besides the obvious one, of managing, I have 10, 200-unit apartment buildings in in a city. Instead, I have 3,000 homes in a city. Mm -hmm. How do you bring the skill set from managing those 10 big apartment buildings to the 100 homes all over town? How how do you do that? That's scattered site. That's still really hard to do, although maybe technology solves most of the problem.
1: Yeah, it's it's, um, it's, it's almost predominantly... uh, technology-based, and it's that intersection of the technology in the hands of the consumer and technology in the hands of that field frontline employee. It goes back to that concept. Uh, That's what makes this possible. And then the people that we employ, mostly, not 100%, but many of them come from the multifamily discipline. So they know how to run a railroad, they know every day you do this, every week you do this, every month you do this, every quarter you do this, every year you do this. There's discipline, and they know you know how important it is to meet the needs of the customer and to you know, achieve customer not only service, not satisfaction, but customer loyalty. So there's that uh, that innate you know drive of just how how you do things because it's because you think about it, it's not really in in my mind. The the differences are just nuances around the edges between apartments versus single-family versus student housing versus manufactured housing versus seniors' housing. It's all residential. The P&Ls are almost identical. The supply and demand drivers are very similar on a macro basis. It's just point of life cycle and life stage that are, are unique to each, you know, on the margin unique to each customer set within those different uh, businesses. so why do they have to be treated as completely different they really shouldn't be. so you can a lot of the methodologies and disciplines are transferable.
0: What's the biggest blind spot though in looking at it that way that is hard to get over to see that there is something maybe hugely different
1: well the, when we started and it was interesting you, you used the comment well gee you have like 10, 300 unit buildings,
0: we started off of
1: just creating like a virtual apartment building. So we said, okay, this is something new, something unique, it's something mysterious. It's something you have to you get your, wrap your head around. So just think about it like you have, you know, a, you know, a 300, 400 unit apartment building, but you just don't have an office, you know, in the, on the same property. And, and, you know, you can't just drive a golf cart around or get in an elevator. And, uh, you have to get in a car and, uh, right. you can't walk up and down and see the things you have to kind of, you know, imagine <laughs> and, and, um, and guess what? If the, uh, customers won't come in and plop down in the office and, and, um, you know, eat cookies, drink coffee and talk to you, you know, you may never meet them at all. So, uh, but you can think about it as a collection of assets around a hub of people. You know, that meaning that property manager, that service manager, service technicians, leasing people, you know, uh, administrators. So that's how we did it. And, and early on, we, that number was about three to 400. And then we realized, as we started deploying our technologies, we could take that number up to six to 800. And then we crossed 1,000. And then it was 1,200. And then it was 1,600. And then 1,800. And now we're running 2,200 homes from one centralized property management group. So the in terms of headcount uh, to assets, we're much more efficient than the apartment business. Um, but we have to deploy a lot more technology to bridge that gap. Uh, and then on the service delivery and on the turn process, uh, a lot of people think that we're contracting everything. That's really not the case. We're, we're probably on a service delivery, we're probably contracting maybe uh, 50% percent 50% percent self perform 50% bend. Uh, not as efficient as the most efficient multifamilies, but we don't have to be uh, because we can bridge the gap with technology. And then the other big difference is our turnover. Our turnover is very low compared to the apartment business, especially compared to suburban garden, which is the most applicable to our business. Our turnover is, runs in the 35-ish percent per year, significantly below apartment turnover, so that drives a lot of activity, drives a lot of cost.
0: And so did the economics wind up being close to the apartment economics, more efficient overall? Yes, if you look at uh,
1: you know, the early days of the apartment business as we we're professionalizing it, uh, two things, one was those companies early on carried a lot of debt. You know, um, uh, you know, they may have been 50, 60% uh, debt, In some cases maybe more. And then it took them a couple decades, you know, to eventually, you know, whittle that balance sheet down to be, you know, investment grade and beyond. And then the the um, uh, other aspect was just looking at margins, operating margins, you know, NOI margin, pre and post capex. Mm-hmm. And you know, early days, the department business was running, you know, they're probably running 45, 50 percent margins, and then. Got better and better and better and better. It took a couple of decades. And the next thing you know, they're running 60 to 70% margins. But our, our business, uh, same parallel paths. The balance sheets were heavily uh, levered. I think uh, early days, I think one of the predecessor companies were, um, like were 70% leverage at one point. Now uh, we're running 42%. Still high compared to the modern day apartments, but on a fast path, you're closer. Yeah. We're, we're, everything is improving faster. It's We're, we're doing it, you know, in measurements of increments of years versus decades. And then on the margins, uh, we started off, you, you couldn't even compute a margin. Uh, and then it was like in the forties and then the fifties and then 55 and then 60 and then 65. Uh, so we're, we're now in that mid 60 range with, I think last quarter, I think we had seven markets that were operating north of 70. So we're right there with the, you know, some of the best apartment operators in terms of margins. Uh, Not completely yet, but we're very close. And I think just another couple years, you know, we'll be be right there.
0: Right. One comment to that may be that when you did it in the apartment industry, you didn't really have a target you were going to. You didn't have peers that had been there, done that for years. And now you have the example of these other sectors.
1: That is true. You know, some of the very basics that we, you know, deployed day one were things that were fairly new, you know, to the apartment business. You know, like the revenue management, you know, the basic fundamentals of re- re- uh, revenue management, the concept of lease expiration management. You know, uh, uh, those things we were able to set up day one. You know, renter's insurance. You know, uh, lease administration. You know, um, internet marketing. You know. Uh, The the commitment for customer service and customer loyalty; those things we knew were important, so we could start day one versus having to discover their importance over a couple decades.
0: Totally true. So if you write, if you write the story, what where's this business in ten years? Ten years, um, in the hands of my successor. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. That's for sure. Maybe you'll retire. We'll see.
1: I'll still be a shareholder, though. Yeah, the, uh, will definitely be a a seasoned institutional real estate asset class with premium assets in premium markets, uh, commanding premium valuation based on the quality and the durability of our revenue stream and our dividends and our underlying continued, you know, uh, uh, creation of value through home price appreciation, which is Another aspect of this business a lot of people don't understand is that our, our basic asset value underlying, underpinning asset values, you know, continue to grow through uh, home price appreciation, not just NOI and a cap rate, because uh, we have right. we have two constituents, you know, uh, balancing kind of the, the imputed value of our asset base. There's the income approach, uh, but then also we have this emotional approach, which is just home values in general. So uh, if you look at the demographics over the next 10 years, the millennial cohort is massive. It's larger than the baby boom cohort, and it's just getting to that period of time where the the peak of that bubble, that massive bubble, is moving into the more mature life stage where these uh, massive numbers of people will be entering into the household formation, more traditional household formation, where they're going to be seeking larger spaces in the suburbs with good schools for their children. And that's the business we're in.
0: And then at some point in the future, I
1: could see where residential real estate becomes a sector instead of having these individual sectors, because just economic theory would tell you that there's inefficiencies uh, by having duplicative, similar operations. So with P&Ls, and balance sheets and operating metrics and customer sets and the drivers of these customers being so similar across those, all these residential sectors, you got to believe that someday we'll have one platform operating multiple sectors.
0: And, and Fred, what do you think? I, it, there's been no point in my 40-year career in real estate and in residential real estate where housing affordability has been such a headline in the national news, such a point of discussion and so what does the emergence of this business bringing transparency and velocity to the single family rental market? how does that ultimately affect affordability seems to me it may affect it by pushing <laughs> pushing numbers up, but I don't know
1: yeah well well you know we live in a in a uh, you know, economy based on the basics of supply and demand. You can't, right.
0: you can't get away from
1: it. It doesn't matter what you're selling. You know, and, and the price of any asset is the intersection of those two forces. And then the perceived value and the, and the uh, rationalized trade-offs of the consumer. You can't just publish a price and get it. You know, it's, it's not that easy. You've got to demonstrate value. And the general public has to uh, agree to that value and reward you with that price. So people think, "Oh, you just set prices." That's the furthest thing from the truth. If you look at, you know, residential, it's undeniable the demand is going to be growing for the next 10 years. Just look at demographics. I mean, math—it's mathematics. Births minus deaths and, and and the aging process of this millennial cohort then plus immigration uh, plus the extended life uh, expectancies of the previous generations there's going to be a a, a lot of housing to be demanded so as a society if we don't want you know pricing to go skewed up what do you do you can't stop the demand it's mathematical only thing you can do is stimulate supply so uh, uh what we need is a more a conviction of local development controls, and there's so many hurdles to those in the development business. It's an arduous process that takes multiple years, sometimes multiple decades to get approval. And every hurdle that's put in every year, there's probably multiple hurdles put in and never any relaxed, and it just takes more time and more money. And the cost goes up, 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 up. And guess what? You know, risk capital that is that is uh, attracted to real estate development earns a certain return relative to other returns available in the economy And if that r- return is not there The capital will not be there So the only way to preserve Risk capital coming into development is to preserve that Risk adjusted return vis-a-vis other investments And if you drive up the cost uh, To develop guess what the price has to go up so frustrating to me to hear all this dialogue and yeah, we, we're concerned about affordability. Who wouldn't be? We're a caring society. We want everybody to have a you know a quality home in a quality neighborhood for their children. But if we, we need more supply to solve the problem. That needs to be the, the conviction of our elected officials is to stimulate supply instead of shutting it off because the demand is undeniable. So uh, so we're, we're focused on on creating value, uh, creating a, an environment where people find a great home in a great neighborhood, you know, that has schools, that has services, that has safety, and they can, you know, raise a family. And, uh, you know, they'll have the space they need, the storage they need. And that, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, a market price that is justified based on that, you know, given time of supply and demand.
0: Got it. Hey, um, last question. If you had one piece of advice for a young person getting into this business, what would it be? Oh, wow. It's, uh,
1: it's a great business to be in. Uh, you know, some people view real estate as kind of either a specialty, uh, and it's not. Um, it, in a real estate career, any given day, you're able to apply multiple Business school concepts and disciplines: from customer relations, human relations, organization design and development, operations research, technology, legal, electrical engineering, civil engineering, uh, you know the physical plant. It's multifaceted, so you just have to be open to the idea of hey, this is a this is a business career. It's not just People may think of real estate as just, oh, you just, you know, buy, hold, and sell. Not at all. Uh, and then the capital markets has, have evolved to be very sophisticated public capital markets with access to all sorts of different channels of uh, debt and equity. So it's, very fa- it's a fascinating business with a lot to learn, and there's so many areas that you can specialize in. Once you're in the real estate business for a period of time, especially this variety, you know, the large institutional you get a horizontal education and outlook on business in general that cuts across almost every discipline you can imagine that you studied in business school.
0: Wow, there's no doubt about it, and your career has proven that as in this conversation. Like I said, it's been very, very good to me. <laughs> I've been very, very fortunate <laughs> and uh, lucky. I'm,
1: I always told my I'm the luckiest guy in the world, and I'm still that today.
0: I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices. If you like the episode, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to comment via our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thank you very much.